Shabbat Shalom. Ah, feels a bit like it was Murphy's Law for me this morning. I woke up, my jaw hurt, my knee hurt, my hip hurt, and then I got a splinter in my foot. And then the E string on my guitar broke. But here we are. Praise God. Bless the Lord. This Shabbat's parasha is entitled Vayeshev, meaning and he dwelt. Jacob is back in Canaan, and our attention turns to Joseph, who's now 17 years old. And because Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, uh, who has since passed, Jacob lavishes his greatest affections on Joseph. And you can imagine that doesn't sit well with his brothers. Uh, They resent him. And then the situation is compounded by a bad report Joseph brings his father about the substandard work of his siblings. And it gets worse. Jacob gives Joseph an extravagant robe. Some Bible versions translated a full-length or multicolored robe. And textual and archaeological evidence from that period reveals that tribal chiefs wore just such uh, lavish robes as a sign of authority. So by giving this extraordinary robe to Joseph, Jacob signaled his intent to make Joseph the next leader of the family. This explains the growing resentment of the brothers. And it gets worse still. Joseph has two remarkable dreams in which he is exalted above his brothers and even his father, and he tells them all about it. They're not happy. Jacob rebukes Joseph, but at the same time keeps the matter in mind. But the brothers by this time are livid. When Joseph is sent once again to check on his brothers, they see him coming at a distance and plot to kill him. Reuben, wanting to save Joseph's life, suggests instead they throw him in a pit, figuring he'll rescue him later, and the others go along with it. They sit down to eat, and they probably sat down far away from the pit so they didn't have to listen to him scream for help. Thank you, Jim. Well, suddenly they see an Ishmaelite caravan at a distance, and they devise a plan. Hey, why not sell him as a slave instead? It's better than murder, and they'll have a few shekels to show for it. But before they had a chance to retrieve Joseph, some Midianite traders had already happened upon him, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites. Oh, boy. Reuben returns to the pit, and Joseph is gone. So the brothers concoct a lie. They had already taken his robe. They tear Joseph's beautiful robe. (coughs) Excuse me. They dip it in the blood of a slaughtered animal and bring it to their father. Jacob, seeing the torn and bloodied robe, concludes that Joseph is dead, and he's devastated. After that, Jacob is a broken man. Meanwhile, this is like a Cecil B. DeMille. You're going back and forth. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Joseph has been taken there as a slave and sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's personal guard. Our hearts grieve for Joseph, whose circumstances for the moment 
seem especially bitter. And now our attention is turned back to Canaan. Like I said, it's like a movie. We're going back and forth. Judah's Canaanite wife had borne him three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah's wife had died, leaving him a widower. Some years later, Judah arranges a marriage between Ur and a young uh, woman named Tamar. And we're told that Adonai regarded Ur as evil and took his life. So Judah directs Onan to fulfill the duty of leveret marriage and take Tamar as his wife. Now, this is interesting because this is over 400 years before the Torah was given. And so we see that some of these practices were already in place. Onan, however, refuses to give Tamar children since they wouldn't be credited to him. And on account of this callous disregard for his brother's memory, God takes his life too. Now Judah is afraid to give his last surviving son, Shelah, to Tamar, lest he also die. So he delays and delays. Tamar finally figures out that this marriage isn't going to happen. So she takes matters into her own hands. That's a scary thought. Disguising herself as a prostitute, she lures Judah into having relations with her. Three months later, she's discovered to be pregnant, and Judah presumes she committed adultery. But before he can have her put to death, she reveals that he himself is the father. (laughs) He admits his own guilt in reneging on his promise to give Tamar to Shelah. He never has relations with her again. She gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. Now, why does scripture highlight such a repulsive course of events? Because as we discover later, it is Judah who will be preeminent among Jacob's sons, and through Judah will trace Messiah's ancestry. So uh, it may seem scandalous, but God chooses people and circumstances in his own wisdom to accomplish his own purposes. Think about this. If you've made even some grievous mistakes in your life, don't think that God cannot redeem those things and turn it to good and for his glory. Now the narrative cuts back to Joseph, who's now a slave in Egypt. His work for Potiphar is exemplary. God was with Joseph and prospered everything he did. Potiphar recognized something extraordinary in Joseph and put him in charge of the entire household. At one point, Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce Joseph, and he refuses. I mean, he's a godly young man. He is not going to offend Adonai. Day after day, she persists to no avail. And finally, she turns on Joseph, telling Potiphar that he tried to rape her. Potiphar is furious, but instead of putting Joseph to death, consigns him to prison. Poor Joseph. Innocent of any wrongdoing, yet betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and now falsely accused of rape and imprisoned. But even there, God was with him. And the chief jailer sensed it. Sometime later, Uh, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and baker had these tandem dreams the same night, and they looked dejected the next morning. 
So Joseph inquires because he was supervising them. Each had had a strange dream. Well, Joseph interpreted their dreams. In three days, the cupbearer would be restored to office and the chief baker would be hanged on that same day. He beseeches the cupbearer to please remember him when it happens and petition Pharaoh for his release. Well, three days later, the events transpire just as he told them. The baker is hanged. The cupbearer is restored to office. But the cupbearer completely forgot about Joseph, and he would remain in prison a full two years longer. Joseph's undeserved humiliation and suffering led some ancient rabbis to give the title Ben Yosef to the Messiah, son of Joseph, because Messiah too would be innocent, yet despised and betrayed by his own for a sum of money, Joseph's brothers, I'm sure, never thought that they would see him again. They were wrong. And we'll find out next Shabbat. And Lord willing, we'll see how dramatically things turned around. Likewise, Messiah Yeshua's death was not to be the end of this story. From the pits to the heights. So how can we apply this? Well, if you were in Joseph's place, you might have felt abandoned by God. Would you have felt abandoned? Maybe. But God was with him. And this was all part of his divine plan. Those years produced both patience and humility in Joseph. And hardship can do that for us. Don't interpret your immediate circumstances as either proving God's favor or disfavor upon you. We don't know the end of a matter from the beginning. Perhaps Rabbi Paul had Joseph in mind when he wrote, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Joseph loved him. If you love him, and if we'll cling to Adonai in the midst of our hardship, we will be better for it. He's shaping our character in preparation for the eternity we will spend with him. Amen.